Well, good morning, dear church, and uh, we are having fun with these stories that are coming in about, uh, about the $20, and I, uh, I had one shared with me about uh, a, a guy stopped by the, uh, the church here and um, said that he was something to the effect he was newer and couldn't believe the church gave him money. And he handed the $20, and then he handed a check for $20,000 to the church. And that's being touched by 20 bucks, isn't it? So that and so many other stories, I mean, we celebrate uh, that in the widow's might as well, and however God leads us to to give, but it's great to see um, generosity. And uh, so I'd encourage you to do something with that, something meaningful. God will bless you for it, I believe. So, good morning, and uh, good morning online, those that are joining us uh, in this way. I was not here last Sunday. I had a a break, and uh, we had Thanksgiving. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I will make no comment on whether you look like a bigger church today than last time I saw you, (laughs) if you don't make a comment of whether I do. But uh, we are delighted to be into the Christmas season now. This is obviously like one of our like, uh, best months of the year if you're a Christian, and we very much want to enjoy what it means that Jesus came to earth. Uh, this will be highlighted at our Christmas Eve services, uh, which were mentioned earlier. I just mentioned these are always some of our favorite services. You know, it's, uh, it's hush and candles, it's wonder and worship, uh, beautiful music, and uh, I would also add, it's, it's, it's truly the easiest ask. Uh, if you have a friend that maybe you'd like to introduce uh, to Christianity or introduce to our church, it's the easiest ask of the year. What are you doing, uh, what are you doing Christmas Eve? Would you, would you like to come to, with me to our Christmas Eve services? N- nobody's offended by that, And uh, if they say yes, they are going to hear the gospel presented in a very compelling way. Who knows how God might use that opportunity. I would encourage you to give it a try. Our December series is entitled Finding Christ at Christmas. Like you, I grew up uh, doing a lot of puzzles. Uh, Kids love puzzles. Teachers love to give puzzles, apparently, to kids. My kids are doing them presently. So here we have a word search puzzle. I'm sure you're familiar with how these work. It's always easier to find the ones that go the right direction, isn't it? It's the ones that go backwards, and especially backwards and like, you know, kitty corner, that's the, those are the tough ones to find. You're probably familiar with these. You you probably also did uh, these games where they hide a picture in a picture. Right, and there's, you know, you gotta find the cucumber, and uh, you gotta find the monkey, and it's kinda drawn into it in a way that it's hard, it's hard to see. You maybe are also familiar with uh, something that was popular some many years ago, I think, Where's Waldo, okay, Where's Waldo? And there was an artist, I think a British artist, who drew these pictures with tons of people, and you know, the fun is to find Waldo in the crowd, and uh, he's, in there, he's in there somewhere. So in the, in the word search puzzles, the words are there, but they're hard to see. In the picture search, uh, the picture is there, but it's, it's hard to see. And in Waldo, Waldo's there, but he's hard, he's hard to see. 
And finding Christ at Christmas is a lot like a word search puzzle or a picture search puzzle or a Waldo puzzle. He's there, but he is increasingly hard to see. I heard a sermon recently and uh, the pastor warned about thankless thanksgivings and Christless Christmas. And how easy it is, these days in particular, uh, to be thankless at Thanksgiving and Christless at Christmas. And so we want to avoid that very much here at Bethel Church. We want to find Christ at Christmas, to find him yet again. And so what we're going to do is we are going to, uh, we're going to locate Jesus each Sunday in the story. Today, we're talking about Jesus in heaven. Next week is Christ in the womb. The third Sunday is Christ in the cradle. Christmas Eve is Christ on the cross. And the Sunday after Christmas is Christ exalted again to heaven. So where is Christ in the story? Can you find him? Can you see him? And in finding him, can you, like the wise men, worship him? Okay, worship him. So today, Christ in heaven. My text is John chapter one, the gospel of John. There's a lot of John in, in, the, in the Bible. You know, you got first John, second John, third John. John wrote Revelation as well. But then you have the gospel of John, this very precious and unique gospel of the four, where John begins with these in, just incredible words, famous words in the Bible. He wrote this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God bless his word to Bethel Church and to you and to me today. So this is John's Christmas story. And right now you're already confused because you're thinking to yourself, you know, I didn't hear anything about shepherds. Uh, There was no mention of angels. We don't even have a baby in the manger. How can you call this John's Christmas story? And the reason we can is that John as he often does in his gospel, is not so much about writing the chronology or telling the story, although he does some of that, as much as explaining what it means. So John's uh, Christmas story is a theological Christmas. Matthew and Luke tell the story of what happened. John is much more focused on the Christology, the meaning of the incarnation. You might notice, for being a Christology of Christmas, he doesn't use the name Christ. He doesn't even use the name Jesus. Did you catch that? In fact, maybe as I read that, you were like, the word, who is he talking about here? Because indeed, he uses a title of Jesus without using the name Jesus. And what is that title? It is the word. In the Greek, it's the famous word logos, a common term in the first century, not so much for us today, but it was a common term in the first century. The Greeks used this term, especially the more sort of philosophical and educated types, but the Jews also 
use this and we're very comfortable with it for reasons I think you realize but you don't realize, okay? So let's go back to John 1, 1. Does this sound familiar to you? In the beginning. Where have I heard that before? I know I've heard that somewhere before in the Bible. I can't exactly put my finger on it, but I would swear I, wore, I read that somewhere. And the obvious answer is, where do we find those words? Literally, in the beginning of the Bible, we find the words, in the beginning. And so the Jews understood all kinds of things from those few words, that God preexisted creation, that God spoke. If you read the account in, in, in Genesis 1, he creates by speaking. And God said, and God said, and God said, and the universe came into existence. And so this was very much already in the kind of uh, the mindset of Judaism that there is a God who transcends creation, there is a God who creates everything, and how does he do it? By speaking words. And so John now, writing his gospel, writing his Christmas story, begins with the very same words that the Bible begins with. In the beginning was the word. So the Jews were very comfortable with this. What they were not comfortable with was any insinuation that there was more than one God, okay? Key to the whole system of Judaism is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We studied just that verse this summer. And uh, the Jews love that verse. They, they quote it every day. They begin every synagogue service begins with a quoting. In, uh, not in the beginning, hero Israel, the Lord your God is, is one. So here now, John, with guidance from the Holy Spirit, begins his entire theological gospel about Jesus and his Christmas story. And he starts it long before Mary and Joseph. He starts it long before uh, Nazareth and Gabriel. He starts it long before any of the things that we associate with Christmas, and he grounds it in the beginning and gives Jesus the title, the Word. Okay, so that's the who here. He's talking about Jesus. Notice when. In the beginning was the Word. Before time, in eternity past, before the creation of the universe, before the creation of the heavens, before the creation of time itself, is when John begins the Christmas story. Way back then, before everything that was not God. See also who the word is with. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Greek word literally means towards, okay? And it insinuates relationship. This word who is, who is there with God is in some kind of relationship. It means towards, okay? So it's kind of like, you know, if, if somebody says your name and you turn towards them, it's, 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 it's meaning that you're going to engage in relationship. Or we say this, she really turned her back on me. And what do we mean by that? You know, if somebody turns their back on you, they are rejecting you. Okay? So this is a relational term. God, with whom the word is, does not turn his back on the word, rather is turned towards the word. There is some kind of a relationship 
that is going on here. And the third clause now is the shocker. Not only was this word there before everything that is not God, and not only is this word in relationship with God, now John goes where no good Old Testament Jew would go. He says this, and the word was God. Did you hear that? Was God. He is God himself. And there's so much in this little phrase here, okay, you could, we could spend a lot of time here, but obviously we have the Trinity in view, okay? The Trinity is definitely in view here. This verse makes no sense at all if you don't kind of have a Trinitarian Godhead. The word was with God, okay? Now, the angels are with God. The seraphim are with God. Revelation talks about the elders gathered around the throne, whoever they are, but they're with God as well. So just the fact that you're with God doesn't mean that you actually, that you, you, you are God. I remember uh, Jennifer and I were standing in line, we were debating this, this actually, I told her this story, I reminded her of this story. I thought it was our honeymoon. She said, I don't think it was our honeymoon, but then her mind was in the clouds of joy, so. <laughs> We won't, you know, falter for a, a not remembering correctly, but we're standing in line at the airport ready to get on the plane and there's a super tall guy standing behind me. And I turn around and I look at him and I said, are you Tony Kukoc? And he says, I am. I said, cool. <laughs> As a, a 90s bull loving fan, I was kind of excited about the fact that is right behind us. It wasn't the best thing about the honeymoon, but one of the best things about the honeymoon. <laughs> so for the duration of that flight, I was with an NBA champion. Does that make me an NBA champion? Kinda, you know. <laughs> Obviously the answer is no. In the same way that being with God doesn't make you God. That's a whole nother level of statement. And that's the power of this phrase. These are, these are very short little statements. In fact, if you go to seminary and you learn Greek, you, 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 you translate from John because it's the simplest Greek in the whole Bible. Like this is not complicated but there is, it is infused with deep meaning. The word was God. And the whole phrase turns on that little statement, that little, that little word. And obviously without a doctrine of the Trinity, this is just all nonsense, okay? How can you be in relationship with God and at the same time be God? Like that just does not make any sense. Kids, I'm driving the carpool a few weeks ago and I said, hey kids, I got a question. Who can tell me what is one plus one plus one equals one? And a perceptive young man in our carpool said, the Trinity. And I hired him on staff <laughs> on the spot. Okay. I'm gonna keep my eye on that young man. He seems to have some pretty good insights here. 
One plus one plus one equals one. That is mathematical nonsense, but it is theologically essential and critical and wonderful. How do you make sense of verses like John 1, 1 without the Trinity? Here's where other verses help us. Micah 5, we read this earlier in the service. Okay, so here's the, here is the prophecy about where the Messiah would be born. This is the prophecy, if you remember, when the wise men come to Jerusalem and say, where is he born king of the Jews? And Herod gets all the, you know, the, the other wise guys in and says, okay, what's the deal? They quote this verse and say, apparently in Bethlehem, right over there. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So right in the prophecy about where Jesus would be born is a prophecy about his ancientness. Here's another one. This, this blew the minds of first century Judaism, John 8. Here's an exchange Jesus had. He says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews asked him, you're not yet 50 years old and how have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, do they go, oh, well, that's a very interesting statement he made there. Let's have a small group gathering and talk about it. No, notice what it says. So they picked up stones to throw at him, in other words, to murder him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus says here, not only do I... He invokes the name of God. Remember, the covenantal name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the existent one, the I am, he says, before Abraham was, and now here, here's, the, here's the mind blower, I am. What is he talking about here? Why did the Jews go berserk when he said this? We are talking today about the preexistence of Christ. The preexistence of, of Christ. This might be the most important doctrine you've never heard of, okay? So hang with me here, because there are so many heresies in the history of the church that, that in some way are, are rooted in the reality of the preexistence of Jesus and the eternality of Jesus. Perhaps the most famous heretic of all, Arius, said this, there was once when he was not. Now, let's say we had a guest preacher who came in here and, and said a whole bunch of words, and amongst the words that he said was, there was once a time when he was not. How would this church respond? I hope that you would look for stones, and, uh, and not truly, but escort him out of the, out of the, uh, out of the church and say, uh, you, you shan't preach here again. Why? because we would recognize that is a heresy. That is saying something that is not true about Jesus. 
Now, it's acknowledging the fact that we have a difficulty here. And uh, the difficulty is that the Bible describes Jesus as the only begotten of the Father. Ever thought about that? How can Jesus be eternal and begotten? Because begotten insinuates a beginning. Any birthdays this week? <laughs> Probably a hundred of them here or something. Uh, we celebrate birthdays. We celebrate beginnings. Everything in our world has some identifiable starting point. We are accustomed to things that have beginnings. We can't fathom somebody or something that has no beginning. And so there is this challenge of verses like John 3.16. You might have learned this as a child. I'll quote it in the King James. That's the version I learned it in. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We just kind of, that rolls off our tongues, and we go, oh yes, we believe that. But have you ever thought about, wait, what does it mean only begotten? How can Jesus be begotten and at the same time eternal? Here's the Nicene Creed. By the way, we like the Nicene Creed. Fourth century, responding to Arius. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the world, light of light, very God of very God, here's the key, begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. And that last phrase is the resolution that the church has come to regarding how Jesus is eternal and yet begotten. And as we think about this, this is a mystery, which we should have mysteries when we're thinking about the infinite God. And this is a mystery, but the Bible says that Jesus was with God at the beginning and at the same time, God. He is the Son of God and the begotten Son of God, begotten, not made. And again, this is outside of our experience, because every being that we ever come across, whether it be an animal, a plant, a human being, has a beginning point, generally has an ending point. Everything we know, begotten means beginning. But we are talking about God here, and so we shouldn't be surprised that things are a little bit different. Jesus is begotten in a different way than you and I were begotten. He is begotten in a divine way, in a way that shares the eternal nature of God and therefore was God. And he was with God in the beginning, so he is himself God. But he was eternally begotten, but never was not. Okay, He never was not. Always was, always is, always will be and yet eternally begotten. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that's confusing to you, there's a young man in my carpool who will explain it to you. 
Okay, but this is hard to comprehend, okay? So I should have warned you, uh, you know, engage your brains here this morning because we're, we're talking about a difficult doctrine to comprehend and yet wonderful, the bit that we can understand. It truly is wonderful. Sometimes at dinner, uh, I will uh, ask my girls questions that I intend to, you know, befuddle them. And uh, so I uh, have asked them recently the metaphysical question, girls, where were you before you were born? And they go, and they just sort of raise their eyebrows, insinuating we don't have a good answer for that. And I'll tell you, in some ways, I feel like I don't have a good answer for that because now that they're in my life, I can't imagine them not being. I don't know if you ever thought about that if you happen to be a parent, like, isn't being and personhood and existing itself a marvel? <laughs> and to think of, you know, how this all works, it just blows my mind. But Jesus is the opposite of us. We didn't exist and then we exist. Jesus existed before he existed. He was eternally before he was conceived. And that is why I call this maybe the most important doctrine you've never heard of because the, the doctrine of the incarnation, if I can say it this way, Christmas rests upon the preexistence of Christ. If he is not preexistent, then there is no Christmas. And you can't make sense of a host of other things that the Bible says about about Jesus, unless he was sent by God here, and by the way, is God. John 17, three, and this is eternal life, this is Jesus, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. John six, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 8, 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And probably a hundred more verses that I could read that talk about how Jesus was sent. And the only way you have a sent Jesus is by having a pre-existing Jesus. It's like, you know, if, if you send a letter, the letter exists before it arrives. If you send an email, the email exists before it arrives. If you send a gift, the gift exists before it arrives. And therefore, Jesus, as the ultimate word from God, gift from God, sent by God, must exist before he arrives. Or if he doesn't, now he is more of a miraculous birth like Isaac was a miraculous birth. Or like John the Baptist was a miraculous birth. We could say he was amazing, he was a prophet, he was inspiring, he, he was a great teacher, he did amazing things, but you can't say that he was God. So we clap and applaud Augustine when he said, do not imagine any interval or period when the Father was and the Son was not. He is the eternal God. 
And here we are, we're, we're, we're finding Christ at Christmas. And the Christmas story doesn't begin in the manger in Bethlehem. It begins in the person of God, a triune God, and the Word who was with God and is God. And by the way, was doing a whole bunch of stuff before he ever became a baby in Bethlehem. Did you know that? It's not like Jesus was, you know, in the, in the, in the on deck circle uh, for all these centuries, just waiting to finally get his chance to actually do something. No, he was very active before he became the baby we call Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus before the incarnation, okay? So where was Jesus before the incarnation? Was he just a twinkle in Mary's eye? No. The standard answer we would say is that he was in heaven. And I think once heaven was created, that is the right answer. But you realize that heaven itself is a created reality. That God created the heavens and the earth. That God created the angels and God created the spiritual realm. But there was a time prior to the creation of the spiritual realm and the creation of the angels where all there was was God. And there in that pre-incarnate, pre-creation, pre-heaven time, there was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that's it. What did Jesus do before the incarnation? Well, he just sat around waiting for his time to do something. No, no, not at all. Listen to Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when we say God created everything that is, that is true, but the agency within the Godhead of the, who was the one actually doing the creation? When God spoke the light and darkness and the worlds into existence, the agent doing it was the second person of the Trinity, the one who was born of Mary and we call Jesus. There he was creating the universe and Colossians says, as long as the universe has existed, it has existed by power and sustained by the power of Jesus Christ. And that's true right now, by the way. The galaxies, the spiraling atoms, the molecules, the plants, the oceans, the planets, the suns, all doing what they're doing, sustained by the power of God and specifically the power of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is one of the marvels to me. This isn't in my notes, I'm just throwing this in. But again, mystery, okay? But how was Jesus in the womb of Mary developing as a fetus, how is he there sustaining the galaxies? I don't know. I wanna ask him someday. <laughs> but it's a marvel to think about. There's so much about Christmas that just blows our minds. And you're like, if I can't understand all of it, I ain't gonna believe it. You're never gonna believe it then 
because there's so much about it that just, only God, only God. We do find in the Old Testament, secondly, that Jesus is part of the story of the Old Testament. Did you know this? Okay, in the Old Testament, Jesus makes appearances. We call these Christophanies, but there he is in the Old Testament. You say, oh, like where? Okay, like where? Do you remember the visitors who came to Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? There's Jesus, one of those visitors. Jacob wrestles with an adversary all night and then identifies him as the Lord. Joshua, before the battle of Jericho, meets the commander of the army of the Lord. Who was that? That was Jesus that he met outside the gates of Jericho. We have in Daniel, the fourth man in the fiery furnace, whose appearance was like the son of man. Who was that there with Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed I go? <laughs> it was Jesus and other places. So don't imagine Jesus on the, you know, the on-deck circle you know, or, or, or taking a nap, awaiting the incarnation to finally do something. He is creating everything. He is part of the Old Testament story. And there in eternity past, and this is again a marvel, we have Jesus willingly obedient to the will of his heavenly Father. It is exciting and it is humbling to consider that in the mystery of the Godhead, in eternity past, and I don't get this part either, but in eternity past, God the Father communicated to the Son his will and purposes for the creation of everything and the redemptive story regarding image bearers who would rebel against him and that Jesus would come and die in order to save and redeem them. And that that death would accomplish not just a redemption for the fallen human beings, but would accomplish the restoration ultimately of everything that sin broke. And that by doing so, would unveil for the praise of his glory the infinite worth and the perfections and the excellencies that Jesus always had in eternity past but that now redemption has displayed for his forever praise. Okay. And Jesus, in that communication, did not say no. He did not say, I'll get back with you. He willingly submitted to the will of the Father in all of its gore and all of its glory. And this is something that we praise him for and we worship him for. James 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 8, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And this posture of loving submission within the Godhead is a vital part to understanding why God created everything in the first place. And finally, we have Jesus before the incarnation. We have this messianic 
anticipation. We typically call, call, talk about messianic expectation, that the Jews were you know, uh, waiting the Messiah to come and were so excited. And I've, been, I've heard stories about that. You know, when, 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 back then, when, when, when uh, a boy was born, the people gathered together, they played the violin, they danced. They said, this one might be the Messiah. And when a girl was born, they took their instruments and went home. We talk about messianic expectation. What we rarely talk about is messianic anticipation. In other words, the anticipation that Jesus himself had for all the things that his coming and dying and resurrection and exaltation would bring. Love this quote. The doctrine of Christ's preexistence prevents us from transforming Christianity into a religion of human achievement. To a world that asks whether God cares about us or whether he even exists, the doctrine of Christ's preexistence reminds us that God loves his creatures so much that he did not send a representative to help us. He came himself. So to think about the anticipation of Jesus prior to the incarnation, what must Jesus have been thinking as he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground? Someday I'm gonna be made of dust as well. What was he thinking as he saw Adam eat the forbidden fruit? There is a sin whose guilt I will bear. What was he thinking as, as Noah built that ark? A picture of my own salvation. What was he thinking when the Israelites put the blood of lambs on the doorpost that very first Passover in Egypt? I am the sacrificial lamb. Did Jesus know that the prophecies of Micah and Isaiah and David, did he know, did he know he was coming as the root of Jesse? Did he know the whole Levitical system was about him? Did he keep one eye on a little girl growing up in Nazareth named Mary, knowing she would be his mother and her womb his nine-month home. Of course he did. He knew, okay? He knew, and he anticipated the moment when his being left the eternal spiritual realm and became a dividing cell and then a fetus in the womb of a young woman in Nazareth. That is the word became flesh. And we will find Christ there in next week's message. Praise him. Praise him. From whom all blessings flow. Amen.